Immigration Advocates Network Podcast. Welcome to our podcast interview with Michelle Garnett McKenzie, Deputy Director at the Advocates for Human Rights, and Gowan Lee, the Robino Fellow, also with the Advocates. My name is Casey Mears, and I'm the AmeriCorps VISTA Volunteer Outreach and Resource Coordinator at the Immigration Advocates Network. We invited Gowan and Michelle to talk with us today about their organization. We will talk about specific programs and volunteer opportunities they provide, and they will provide some insight on how people may replicate these programs in their own communities across the country. Why don't you guys go ahead and introduce yourselves and talk a little bit about your organization. Hi, everyone. My name is Gowan Lee. I'm the Robina Fellow at The Advocates, and our organization is dedicated to promote human rights, um, and we have a, a, we're a volunteer-based organization, so we have a lot of projects where we involve volunteers, attorney volunteers, and then non-attorney volunteers as well to our work. And I'm Michelle Garnett-McKenzie. I'm Deputy Director here, and I have had the chance to work on our volunteer engagement um, since joining the Advocates back in 1999. Um, as Kathleen said, we work with volunteers to do all of our human rights work, um, whether it's related to immigration or not. Um, and some of the work that we do um, involves fact-finding, documentation, monitoring human rights conditions, um, intervening at the United Nations to promote accountability for human rights violations. Uh, we do work to abolish the death penalty, uh, work to strengthen the advocacy of LGBTI activists around the world. Um, we work a lot on ending violence against women and legal reform to support uh, strong legal systems that uh, help keep people safe from gender-based violence. And, of course, here in the U.S., uh, we work uh, very much on immigration issues, including detention and asylum and human trafficking. Great. Thank you. So going off that issue of immigration, uh, I was wondering what opportunities do you guys have for volunteers to get involved in helping immigrants in your community? Well, the core of our program, like many pro bono uh, immigration programs around the country, started in the early 1980s, uh, getting volunteers engaged in providing free legal services to asylum seekers. And that remains the heart of our direct legal services program. We have asylum seekers here in the upper Midwest, Minnesota, North and South Dakota, and Western Wisconsin are all in our jurisdiction. Uh, we have uh, asylum seekers from over 50 countries in our practice at any given time. Uh, no more than 10% of any uh, of our client base is made up from any one country, and it's changed radically over those 30 years, certainly. Um, we work to have volunteer attorneys who are not immigration lawyers paired with uh, people who practice immigration law as mentors to do all phases of asylum cases, from uh, preparing the I-589 to representing uh, cases in front of the asylum office, immigration court, uh, and in federal courts. Um, we are uh, really focused on asylum, but in the last few years, of course, um, that has become uh, more – the immigration landscape has become more and more perilous, um, beginning in the 90s, uh, we started doing a lot of detention work and um, only recently have really tried to engage volunteers much more directly in detained work. So, Gawen, do you want to talk about the detention volunteer opportunities? 
So um, after we started more focusing on the um, the detained world, um, we have started a program uh, which focuses on having non-immigration attorneys to help people with their bond cases only. Because for people who are detained, sometimes they get a bond from the government, sometimes they don't, or they have a bond that's too high for them to pay. And we engage non, um, our focus is to engage non-immigration attorneys to work on the bond cases, which usually takes one to two hearings to collect documents and then present the arguments. So that's one thing. And the other is we started the court monitoring project where we engage uh, mainly non-attorney volunteers to go to court, sit in the courtroom, and then listen to the hearings that's happening there. I think the court monitoring program brings transparency into the court because usually if uh, we don't have volunteers there, sometimes there's no one watching the hearings. Um, and it also feeds us back information about the court in terms of what has been the decisions on some of those issues and then um, how many people are seeking relief from um, from deportation. Yeah, and the the court monitoring and bond projects, the asylum project, and then other work that we do um, with volunteers uh, to help provide free legal services to people uh, who are increasingly, we find, of course, being exploited by employers who are taking advantage of their immigration status and fears of deportation, um, engaging volunteers in um, in basic needs support, so helping make sure that people have food to eat while they're going through the asylum process. Um, all of that is really a reflection of, of the many ways that people, regardless of their professional training, can get involved in building a stronger commitment to human rights, uh, to the human rights of immigrants and refugees in their communities. Um, so you mentioned the court monitoring program, and I want to talk a little bit more about that. So can you describe some of the goals of your court monitoring project, and then how have you seen any outcomes that suggest that it's effective in accomplishing those goals? Right. Well, the, we started off, as Galen said, this is a really opaque system, right? There are many people who go through detained immigration court hearings never seeing anybody in the courtroom but the judge and the prosecutor. Um, there's, of course, no uh, guaranteed right to counsel in those cases. So in some communities, there might be robust free legal services. In other communities, there may not be anyone. Um, people may just be going through proceedings completely on their own. Their families may be unable to join them uh, at their hearings. Um, and for too many people, you know, it's all behind essentially closed doors. So one of the goals we had was just bringing solidarity into the courtroom, making sure that the, the person who's going through deportation knows that they're not completely forgotten, they're not completely alone. Um, a second goal um, beyond solidarity is education. Um, so the people who are sitting through the detained master calendar hearings um, observing may never have been inside an immigration courtroom or any courtroom, uh, but certainly not in that immigration detained immigration court setting. Um, they get to witness people um, coming up from the detained you know, space in shackles, uh, hands and feet, um, trying to, you know, raise their right hand when, when their hands are pinned together by handcuffs, um, listen to the, 
judges explaining complicated proceedings uh, to people who have really, uh, you know, limited ability to understand because it's the first and only time they've gone through that system um, and no one to help them fill out the forms uh, that are required for them to make a defense. All of that educates the public observers and makes them able to better explain why we as, as full-time detention advocates really, under, you know, are, are disturbed by this uh, this uh, system. And then it brings uh, transparency, and and that's you know essential to good governance and good government is to have. Uh, transparent hearings, um, make sure that courts aren't happen, uh, aren't holding uh, their hearings behind closed doors, um, making access to the public uh, a real regular thing. And um, here in, in our jurisdiction, we're seeing new judges added to the courtroom, um, training them right from the beginning, letting them know right from the beginning that, you know, this isn't, this isn't a closed door system that the public is in in a regular basis, um, keeps everybody on their toes. Um, and uh, while we haven't been able to see long-term impacts yet, I think anecdotally we're seeing a much more awareness um, on the part of uh, both the, the judges and the immigration trial attorneys, the, the ICE attorneys, um, that we have to think about what we're doing. We have to look at con uh, consistency. Um, we have to be prepared for the public to be involved and engaged in this. And um, it's, been, it's been a really powerful tool, especially in the organizing and education side, uh, just in the, short, uh, in the short term. Yeah, anything to add? I agree with what Michelle said, and I think I've heard from volunteers who have been to the court observing program saying that they've learned so much from observing one one and a half hour of the hearing, and that they never knew what was going on with the immigration system, what was happening to all the immigrants. Hearing those stories broke their heart, and they would come back, bring that information, and share with share the information with friends and family, and then raise um, general awareness about the whole system. Yeah. I think that's really, really significant and um, impactful. Yeah, I think it. You know, people know from the news. Um, that immigration is a, a hot topic or that is causing chaos or, you know, but that personal interaction and being able to, to learn um, is something not everyone has a chance to do. And uh, this really opens that opportunity up um, to, for that, that wider audience, but in a structured way. Yeah. And we would also have people who happen to be attorneys um, joining the program and then um, um, coming back asking us, oh, can I? How can I be more engaged as an attorney or um, on a legal capacity? And started becoming volunteers with us. Well, that's a great point, Gawain. We started off um, really trying to um, find ways to keep the amazing number of people who showed up at the airports um, during the the first days of the Muslim ban. Um, keep them engaged. Uh, they clearly had turned out and what was the next step to be taken. And not everybody was ready to jump into court and represent a client, uh, but getting out there and seeing um, the, the way the system operates for potential attorney volunteers 
gives people a chance to observe, to get a sense of the flow of the hearings, to, to kind of get their feet under them so they're ready to volunteer on things like the bond project or representing a, uh, somebody, an asylum seeker, or someone in detained immigration court. So you mentioned you have uh, attorney volunteers who go observe in court, um, but who else would be qualified to volunteer, um, and what sort of groups or individuals have you had success working with in the past? So essentially anyone can volunteer for the court observing project because there's no limit. The courthouse is open to the public, and we have worked with from um, we have worked with um, sanctuary groups, churches, um, and also college students working people, attorneys, um, anyone, right. essentially. The practical limit for us is that in our particular immigration court, you do it's inside a federal uh, building, so they need to have a photo ID, a government-issued photo ID to get in. And we've tried to be able to have both regular check-ins with our volunteers, but also if, say, a teacher wanted to have students go out, try to help them structure it ahead of time so that they know what they're going to see and can debrief afterwards. But um, in general, we've been seeing people, especially as you mentioned, uh, the sanctuary uh, folks go in, that there are lots of people who've been mobilized by the sanctuary outreach and organizing around the U.S., um, in our community, that's been really robust, but it's you know one more way to kind of understand why sanctuary might be the right step for that congregation. Um, we've also seen lots of retired folks mm-hmm. um, who have daytime availability and are really um, you know experienced advocates and have the time to dedicate to taking a morning or afternoon to go observe court. So. What is expected from these volunteers when they participate in your program? Is there a time commitment? Is there any training involved before they start? Right. Well, we do have some basic orientation. Um, it's all online. And um, we're in the process, actually, of developing a more structured uh, training module for folks um, just to kind of standardize that based on feedback we've gotten from our volunteers, our sort of our core volunteers who've been able to help us um, refine this because it is you know, it is a new initiative for the advocates. Um, we have a basic form that is a documentation form, a collection, data collection form. We ask people to print that off ahead of time and bring it with them. Um, unfortunately, people can't use their electronic devices in the courtroom um, if they're in the audience, so they do need to have pen and paper and, uh, you know, a clipboard to write on and, um we help them understand what each of the data fields is that we're collecting, give them some vocabulary um, so they can try to understand the um, the uh, jargon that's used out of court. And um, then we get the reports back from them. We Because this is um, something that is has multiple purposes, it's not just a a survey, we we can have uh, a learning curve for our volunteers. So if they go in and they, you know, have some inconsistency in data collection, we're able to, to look at that qualitative data anyway uh, and not worry too much about that inconsistency to get an overall sense of things because we're accomplishing those other goals of education and transparency. We've, you know, the, the sad thing about the expansion of detention is that here we have detained court hearings happening all the time. 
So what we've done is just have uh, a set of um, sort of an online scheduler that people can grab a time slot and commit to going to a morning or afternoon hearing. Um, I think we ask for two-hour blocks. One hour and a half blocks. One hour, an hour yeah. and a half per okay. shift. But people sometimes people sign up for two shifts at the same time yeah. if they have the whole morning open. Um, sometimes people sign up. Most people sign up for one shift and go there, sit there for a little over an, an hour and a half. Um, and then we ask them to send back their reports, uh, their paper reports to us, uh, so that they're able to, we're able to collect that data, and we're partnering with the University of Minnesota's Center for New Americans on that data collection. So um, they know it's going somewhere, and, <laughs> and that's true. Uh, what type of information do you collect from the volunteers sitting in court, and uh, what do you use the information for? Well, we're collecting uh, some key pieces that are not um, identifying information. So we're not collecting names and addresses and, uh, you know, loved ones' contact information and all of that. There is some sensitive data that's shared between the individual and the judge in orally in the hearings, and we're asking volunteers to not collect that. Um, but they are taking the docket number um, that the person's assigned that day and then um, tracking the hearing date, um, the judge who's there, the trial attorney who's there, the continuance date if the case is continued. So we can see how long is the court backlog and is that shifting around? Um, are people getting too short a continuance to adequately prepare and they're coming back time after time um, unprepared and in the judge is getting frustrated or are they given such a long time, a long continuance that they're languishing without being brought to court timely. Um, we're looking at bond amounts and the amount that's set by the court, um, particularly to look at whether similarly situated cases and facts are being treated the same or differently uh, between judges and by the same judge or by uh, the different trial attorneys who are um, opposing counsel. Um, we're looking at uh, the, um, the relief offered um, and the explanation given uh, by the judge about what's happening. Um, is that clear? Is that um, consistent? Um, and interpreting. Um, in our courts, we see people with uh, many, many different languages, but generally only a Spanish language interpreter is available. So are people being able to understand the proceedings? Were was a phone uh, interpreter available or made available, or did that fail and and somehow things uh, were not happening? Uh, you know, weren't able to proceed again, delaying the person and prolonging their detention. Um, so those are the kinds of, of key data points that we're collecting. Of course, there might be local issues that somebody would really want to focus on, um, and that's that's a strategy that people could adapt. Thank you. Um, so what is immigration court like? Like, what's a typical day? What should volunteers expect to see when they walk in the door at an immigration hearing? Sure. Uh, so I think immigration court is um, pretty different from a general civil court in, in terms of it's very fast-paced. Um, so... Most of the hearings that our observers observe are the master calendar hearings, which could be five minutes to 10 minutes and usually 15 minutes max per hearing. So um, usually in, the, in, the, in one morning, there could be, I think, around 
14, yeah, 15, to, yeah, 20 15 to 20 cases per in the morning. And, and yeah, you'll have the judge sitting in the middle and then one table for the respondent, which is the immigrant, and then the other table for a government attorney. Um, yeah, and then the judge will lead the hearing, ask questions, ask um, each party what they intended to do, and then make um, another thing about immigration court is the judge the judge a lot of the times make rulings on the bench right there. So it's fast paced and then you have the some quick decisions right away after you bring an issue up. Um, some of the other things people see are family members. Um, the courtroom is is open to family if they can get in and get to the courthouse. Uh, across long distances or lacking documentation, but uh, you may see a person, a respondent, uh, who is appearing in court seeing their loved ones for the first time in person in months. Um, and sometimes there's quite a bit of emotion around that. Um, you see immigration attorneys making uh, arguments, and so, I, you know, when I've done observation, it's just really... Uh, really enlightening to hear the different attorneys arguing different issues in front of the court, um, seeing where people can be really creative, trying to share that knowledge um, and, and, you know, be able to really leverage that amongst us all um, to, to up the uh, standard of practice. We're always trying to do that. Um, you can see um, the frustration when the respondent doesn't understand what's going on, and the judge, you know, is, is seeing them for the second or third time and is frustrated that they don't have the papers they um, are supposed to have to make their applications. Um, you can see the attrition of uh, people's uh, willingness to stay and continue to fight their case if they can't get access to counsel. Um, all of those things are, are part of it. Um, so it can be uh, I think important as we've been working on this for the last year, um, now it's been almost, um, to have space for volunteers to connect and talk to one another about what they're seeing and how they want to share that information out. So do you have to be affiliated with the advocates or some other organization in order to observe an immigration court? No. So, like we said before, immigration court is open to public as long as you have a government ID and submit to a security check and then just go and sitting. Um, we take volunteers from everywhere. I, um, yeah, I think most of the time it's a word of mouth or we've talked to a group specifically about the project, but then they spread the word and people just sign up online. I, I will send out um, detailed uh, further information regarding their shift and what they are expected to do and um, instructions on how to get to court, what to do with their um, volunteer time. But other than that, they don't have to be affiliated with us specifically to do the work. Right. And this has been one of the great um, ways we've been able to engage people in, from, you know, a whole range of organizations and independent folks um, who want to just learn more or, or take that next step in being um, engaged in the immigration movement right now. So um, here in the Twin Cities, not only are we doing our 
um, our court observation program, but some of the activist organizations have started um, just going into court after there's a, you know there's a monthly vigil. Um, they take, go in and just observe hearings. Um, it's and and that's been helpful to just you know educate their members. Um, if people are wanting to participate in the documentation effort, then it's really helpful to have uh, a point of contact. And if, uh, you know, a group wanted to actually start tracking what they're doing in another location, um, then that would be something that, you know, it would be important to have a a contact person, um, some consensus on what and how you're going to both collect information and use that. Um, But people can just, you know, go inside and take a look. And the other thing about this is people don't have to be committed long-term to it. They could go and observe once or go and observe once a month or go and observe, you know, for a, a steadily for a, a chunk of time and then opt out when their schedule changes. So it's a way to engage um, on sort of that, that works for some folks um, who are really busy. So if someone who didn't live in your area wanted to get involved in this or even to replicate the program in their own community, uh, how do you suggest they would get started? Well, we, um, I think, would be happy to work with people who want to replicate a project um, to create something in a local community um, by sharing the tools that we use for observation, the um, scheduling mechanisms, um, and uh, some of the various ideas that we've been able to kind of work through um, around the, the goals of the project and would be really thrilled to, to work with any partners who'd want to try to do that. Um, um, whether you need, you know, whether the courtroom space is so small in a particular place that you do want to limit the number of volunteers or whether you've got 20 courtrooms in your jurisdiction, so the number of volunteers doesn't really matter, um, and you can have people showing up um, without signing up. Um, you might want to look at relationships. Um, one of the things that we've had to consider is how we are engaging with the court itself as an institution, as the Advocates for Human Rights. We don't want people going into court and uh, being involved in civil disobedience on our behalf in the courtroom, for instance. They're there to document and observe, not to interfere. So we've, we've been uh, clear with the court on what this project is and what it's not. And, of course, members of the public can engage in many different ways within that courtroom space. Um, if they're under our auspices, we want it to reflect those goals. Um, and... You know, having a, a contact person, somebody who is able to know the immigration court practice so they know what the, the docket is, what the schedules are. They're not sending volunteers out when the court is closed or when there are no hearings scheduled. Um, that's a mechanical piece that is really essential to not frustrating volunteers. Um, if there are any logistics information that um, that's needed for volunteers to successfully get in, um, get to or get in the courtroom, or any rules um, for uh, the public in that courtroom space, that should be conveyed so that people are able to, um, again, successfully get in the door and um, and be there and not feel frustrated or shut out. So all of those things, I think, are um, 
are considerations that people might want to think about before launching a volunteer court observer program, but they're all really surmountable. They're just pretty common sense, and this has been a pretty easy uh, program to administer and um, keep people engaged in. Okay, so what do you suggest people would do next if they're interested in volunteering or learning more? Do you have any resources you suggest or a place where they could go online or to sign up or find more information? Yeah, Yeah. so if they're in the region, we on the Advocates website, we have a page dedicated to the Court Observing observe, Observer Project, and then it has detailed instructions on uh, first watch this video as the initial um introduction to the project, and then sign up on our sign-up website. And then um, usually after that, um, I will send out the the more detailed information regarding their shift a couple of days before their shift, and they're good to go. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so anybody who'd want to take a look at that for purposes of either engaging in the project or doing some replication and working with us um, on a court and developing a court observer project, uh, definitely it's the advocatesforhumanrights.org and they can just click on the volunteer tab and they'll see the option for court observer and can go from there. Great. Thank you both so much. Um, this has been a conversation with Gowan Lee and Michelle Garnett-McKenzie with the Advocates for Human Rights. Um, you can visit their website if you need more information on the Court Observing Project. Uh, we appreciate you guys both so much for talking with us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you.